Do you, EBO? Thank you, Tony. 40 years on Wall Street. What he's seeing now caused him to take pen to paper and write the book, The Race to Zero, How ESG Investing Will Crater the Global Financial System. Welcome, author Paul Tice. Hi, Paul. Hi, Paul. Uh, Good to be with you. Good to have you here. So uh, this is being forced on us. It's not like we're voting for it. So this sort of ESG trading is is the wave of the future. It seems like a freight train we can't get in front of or even to stop. So is is that why you wrote the book, to get everybody prepared for the impending doom, basically? Well, it it was basically to give an insider's view from Wall Street about – what's going on with ESG, but, you know, I'm optimistic that the more we talk about this now and and spread the word, that we can reverse this over the next six years. And and I do think the next six years are going to be critical because ESG and climate change and sustainable development, all of which are are led by the United Nations, um, they have a 2030 deadline, and, and I think that's a real deadline. So things will be ratcheting up between now and then. So uh, the first thing I did when I retired from my my, uh, day job on Wall Street was to write this book and give an insider's view. I think there are a lot of people who work in the industry who agree with me and will agree with me, but they're not allowed to talk about this in public. And that's sad. It's America. But when he says ESG means environmental, social, and governments, um, governance, rather, we're looking at you know, people want to make money. People want to get out of the lower middle class into the middle class into the upper middle class, maybe even rich. But a lot of people are looking at some of the scenarios and they, they're they very, very worried, Paul, that the government is getting in the way to the point where this this isn't sustainable. So how is it going to crater the global financial system, as you claim in your book? Well, if they succeed in, in, in changing the, the very definition of investing and, and corporate policy such that it, it's driven by ESG factors, which are you know, non-financial, they're morally subjective, and there is no proof that they lead to, to uh, the creation of value longer term, um, it's going to lead to a system of capital controls where it's basically the government working through third parties directing the allocation of capital within the financial markets. Um, you know, they call it stakeholder capitalism. It's not capitalism. Um, you know, it's basically government-directed socialism. Exactly. Um, so what it will do is it will limit investors' options. And if you look at what happened in 21 and 22 when the energy sector really outperformed versus everything else, then that will be a, a painful scenario going forward at points in time because – um, you know, we have commodity cyclical sectors, and they go through ups and downs, but you want to be able to position, you know, at the top of the curve. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think more important for the markets is that uh, ESG is driving this transition away from fossil fuels. You know, it, it's the core of ESG, which is climate change. Mm-hmm. And I think that needs to remain the focus. And so we're driving, we're defunding oil and gas, and we're allocating capital to green energy, and, and no one really has explained why that transition scenario is positive for the financial markets down the road, because we can't complete that transition right now. We don't have the technology. It's not market or demand-driven. It's politically driven. And we know that that is going to lead to less economic growth, more poverty, more unreliable grids. That macro picture is very negative for, for the financial markets, 
and no one who advocates for ESG actually explains why that's a good thing. Well, your mouth to God's ears, because anybody with a functioning brain knows that this is stupid, that we're not ready for it, maybe in 50 years, but even Biden has changed it from 2025 to 2030, because he knows we're not ready, um, or, or somebody told him we're not ready. Uh, but, but, but when you look at this stuff... Uh, we all want to take good care of the earth, but we also want to be able to afford to eat. And all this is going to do is create a government and an elite class that have control of everything. And we've seen that happen time and time again all across the planet in different decades, in different ways, but it always turns out the same. So it looks like they're trying to do it on a monetary platform at this point where we can't fight it because it's all there is. Yeah, it, it's been you know put in place through a very non-democratic uh, format. Uh, no one's ever voted on this, certainly not in this country. No. There's never been a referendum. So the, the climate policies have been implemented by the courts and by regulatory agencies, and ESG now is going to be put in place, really cemented in place going forward by financial regulations coming out of the SEC as well as the Department of Labor and then the Federal Reserve. So, you know, um, you know, lawmakers on the Republican side. And this, you know, this is a political issue. ESG is just progressivism masquerading as finance. Right. So we shouldn't shy away from the fact that the other side will say, oh, you're just being political. There's a reason why <laughs> every Democrat supports this and why most Republicans don't, but I would argue that they need to do a better job opposing it. Yeah. So if we're going to reverse this, we need to use the same tactics. Uh, it needs to have a legal strategy, and I do think Republicans at the state level need to lead the charge, especially um, the ones who are in who are representing coal and oil states. Yeah, I mean they they have an, a vested economic interest. So if, if that gets them, you know, spurred to action, that's great, yeah. and that tip, that's been the case up until now with West Virginia versus EPA, and I think that's the template for challenging all of these financial regulations. Um, once those regulations go in place, then everyone will be forced to do this on Wall Street. Up until now, it's been kind of moral pressure, you know, from third parties. But once the regulators say you have to do this, then it'll it'll be taken to a next level, and then you will see more aggressive defunding of the oil and gas industry. Well, we need to stop it. This this sustainable investing is is ridiculous because sustainable for me means affordable. In, in my life, in my general life, to sustain my life, I need things to not be more expensive. And when they say sustainable investing, it makes things more expensive for people like me. Fewer people are going to be able to invest in this, what you call woke capitalism. That's an oxymoron, isn't it? Woke capitalism? That doesn't even make sense. But it's, it's changing what they hate. They hate capitalism. They hate that we have the choice to buy and sell what we feel is best for us or what is proven to be more affordable for us so that more people can buy into it, therefore our investment doing better. So there's no such thing as woke capitalism. That's just the words they've, that, that they've put together to make it sound good to the left. Yeah, I mean, the, the progressives are very good at, at mutilating language and mm -hmm. then using it towards their end. So sustainability implies that this is going to make companies live longer, really. Um, and and the joke. opposite actually is true. If you look at all implementing everything on, on, on the ESG agenda is, is negative from a credit quality perspective for most companies. And we saw last year a couple of the banks who were more focused on 
um, you know, ESG and, and PR related to sustainability, you know, we're not sticking to the knitting in terms of watching interest rates. Mm-hmm. But to give you a perfect example about how sustainability really is a meaningless term, you know, you have uh, integrated oil companies like Chevron and Exxon, which have been around for 140 years, and those two companies uh, are now accused of being unsustainable. Um, yeah. And they're only unsustainable if you buy into the theory that um, there's going to be no demand for fossil fuels down the road. So sustainability is an argument about the future world, and, and you can never win that because no one really knows that, but, but still ESG is using that as their basic argument that all of this stuff will lead to longevity and it'll create value over the long term. They never quite define that for investors, exactly when you're going to get this payoff. Um, and you probably will get killed over the short term waiting for it. Yeah. Well, you know what? If you want to invest in these sorts of things, you go, you go right ahead. But for me, there's a little phrase back in the Obama era that was called too big to fail. You know, so I really feel like the coal and the gas industry are too big to fail right now because there is not a set platform to replace it as we are at this point in history. So they are too big to fail. We need them in order to stay not just economically on our feet, but sustained on our feet so that we can deal with our enemies around the world because they're laughing at us with this 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 woke capitalism thing that's going on because they're building coal plants and digging for oil everywhere. And then they've got us under their thumb with them being in control of the things we need to get to this place where we think we're supposed to go. It's a joke. Yeah, no, if, if you look at, at ESG and climate change and sustainability, all three have this two-tiered approach where uh, the developed world um, has to do it and the third world is held to a different standard. Mm-hmm. And to your point, you know, for every one gigawatt of coal power that we've taken out of service in uh, the U.S. And, and Europe over the last eight years, you know, China and India and others have added two gigawatts of new power. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's a wealth transfer uh, at, at one level, uh, but it's also a means of deindustrializing the West. Uh, to level the, the playing field. And, and they're um, laughing at us, Paul. They are, because they, they're they getting their stuff for cheaper and cheaper. Therefore, they can stick more money into the things that they want to do to outpower us in the future. No, I mean, China's just pumping out EVs. Like you know, people, people may be buying it or not, but it doesn't really matter because it's, it's just for show. Mm-hmm. And then you get politicians here in the U.S. saying, well, we need to keep up in, in the, uh, the EV competitive space because people China... don't want the cars. No, they don't. I mean, it's basically a third car, at least in my part of the country. It's a third car for liberals who who drive around town and don't have to go very far. Mm -hmm. And to to look like, look, I can afford an EV. I have friends who have EVs and more power to them. They're they're a tool around town car. Maybe if you're going 100 miles, great. But they are not sustainable for for mass transportation, um, like like a train or a semi would be. They just are not. And when it gets really, really cold, they're useless. Yeah, no, I mean, I can't even imagine driving an EV and having to go through all of the planning uh, about where the charger stations are and will there be a line there, God forbid, because mm-hmm. then it's going to be a two-hour wait. And, and you know, so all of that planning we, we did away with 100 years ago. Um, and I, I don't think most people, certainly not in the in the bulk of the country, uh, are going to 
want to take that uh, that risk. Yeah, it doesn't matter if you have a charger in your garage. As one of my listeners just said, I have a charger in my garage. Is that going to help you when you're in in South Dakota? <laughs> Are you going to charge it in your garage in South Dakota? I mean, you can't take your car anywhere. You've you've still got to have a combustible engine to get anywhere because that's the way the structure is. You cannot change it as quickly as they're trying to force us to do. Yeah, no, and, and I think we need to be more blunt, and, and, and the title of the book, you know, was a step in that direction, mm-hmm. more blunt about speaking obvious truths about all of this. Um, you know, we're, we're pumping more renewable power capacity, you know, wind and solar, into the grid. At the same time, we're taking out coal. We're not allowing natural gas. We're, we're not, you know, replacing nuclear. And, you know, that's going to end in basically uh, grid failures. And you can't just say, well, we'll use demand management as a plug because demand management means blackouts. And if those happen in the winter like we saw in Texas a few years ago, mm-hmm. people will die, unfortunately. And it may take a crisis, you know, I think, to, to wake people up. Um, but, you know, we need to at least start staying the obvious or at this is a crazy uh, politically driven transition we're talking about. Yeah, the government did it, but let's fire the the director of of the infrastructure in Texas for for not being prepared because you took away all of her ability to prepare for it. Makes perfect sense. Paul, where is your book available? Uh, you can get it uh, on the publisher website at Encounter or Amazon, Barnes and Noble, any real uh, major bookseller, and uh, it, it's coming out today. It's called The Race to Zero. I wanted to have them on right away because the the ESG investing is going to crater the global financial system. And he, he has it right here in black and white. You can see how it's going to happen. And it's going to be sooner than later if we don't do something now. Paul, thank you so much for being on the show. Great. Thanks for having me. I uh-huh. appreciate it. Bye-bye.